3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Good morning, Carnegie. (laughs) (laughs) It is Tuesday, the 2nd of November, and it is 7am. Nice. <laughs> it's it's so when you said second of November, like I knew that it was second of November, but <laughs> hearing someone heart. else say it, yeah. I was yeah. like, mm, that can't be right. Yeah, <sighs> I had this weird like brain confusion <laughs> yesterday, where I was like, wait, is it summer now? Wait, no, there's another month. <laughs> Just like so out of whack. But we are going to have a beautiful day today. Um, for the Melbourne public holiday. Uh, It's going to be 25 degrees and sunny, no chance of rain. Um, Hopefully we're all able to go out and get the sunshine or if you're working that you can duck out and go get some vitamin D for a little bit. Um, Yeah, I think how's everyone feeling at the moment? Have you had much of a chance to go out and mm. do some fun stuff yeah, post-lockdown? Yeah, I feel like I've indulged a little bit yeah. too much. <laughs> now I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been good. Yeah, I've had restaurant bookings. And mm-hmm. Yesterday I went to Nova and also for Pellegrini's for dinner. Wow. So The classic combo. Yeah, oh, it's the classic date night combo mm-hmm. for a Monday. Um, and it's just like such lovely afternoon and evening weather too that yeah. it just made it lovely spaghetti bolognese and a watermelon granita oh heaven (laughs) um i have been out so much but my hay fever has been so Mm. bad yeah it's terrible it's really bad i feel like it it feels especially bad this year yeah Yeah. it gets worse every year that's what they always say (laughs) (laughs) apparently like the melbourne pollen count app they started it early this year in september as a trial but they're like okay yeah it was really bad this year we're gonna keep it that way wow so. Yeah, people were like posting it online being like, it's okay if you're feeling like runny nose and everything. This is why. And, like 90% <laughs> yeah. like pollen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the fun game of is this COVID or is this yes. hay fever every yeah. morning. Love yeah. that game. Yeah. It's a great one. Um, <laughs> well, we've got a pretty great show coming up. Uh, what have we got? Up first? Yeah, so up first, I'm going to play uh, a conversation that was broadcasted part of the Radio Reimagined. And it's a conversation between Professor Eleanor Burke and uh, Alice Skye, a singer songwriter from NAM, Alice Skye. Uh, and Alice Skye is actually Professor Eleanor's niece. So they have a conversation about uh, Indigenous uh, history, their family, and culture. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, and then I will be speaking with a lecturer, um, Dr. Anubha Sarkar from Monash University, about the links between Bollywood and the far right movement in India. I'm really looking forward to that yes, one. Yes. Same. Um, and then at eight o'clock, we'll be speaking with Caitlin McGrain from Gender Equity Victoria about gendered cyber hate, um, online misogyny, and ways in which. 
women can report online harassment, which I think a lot of people don't know how to go about that. Mm. Um, like I think sometimes the internet just seems so big, vast, and people are hiding behind their screens. It's like, what can you actually do? But mm. yeah, I'm lo- really looking forward to that. And then um, at 8.15 to finish off the show, we'll be speaking with Dr. Meredith Bergman, who is the former president of the New South Wales Legislative Council, and also the founder of the Ernie's Awards for Sexism or Sexist Remarks. Um, there were a lot of golden <laughs> remarks this year. As you can imagine, is this just like in just general current affairs politics? Yeah, yeah, and a lot of it came from you know um, Brittany Higgins, yeah. the reporting oh, around that, um, and the remarks from various politicians. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you know we can laugh nervously at the things <laughs> that have been said about women, but then also sit here and feel quite. <laughs> frustrated and upset that this is still going on in 2021 Mm. um and i think yeah it's interesting that those two interviews will go you know i think hand in hand quite well talking about like online misogyny and sexist remarks (laughs) absolutely Mm. um all right we'll, we'll be right back after this it's time to speak up speak out and speak loud From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the show. Um, we've got some news headlines this morning, starting with... Oh, can we please start with <laughs> the, the one most that important I, news? 100%. Okay, so we have talked about, um, you know, Bird of the Year here on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast before. I think Carnegie was very passionate about the tawny... Frog, frog mouth. That's exactly right. I, I actually agree with you now, by the way. There's so many tawnies Thank this you. year. So I've changed my vote <laughs> retroactively. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, it, it was a very heated competition. Um, and so in Otoroa, it's just been announced that the Pekka Pekka Turoa, or the long-tailed bat, has won Bird of the Year um, this year, which huge controversy, mm. uh, obviously, because the bat is not a bird. Um, <laughs> if you don't know um, what the Pekka Pekka Turo looks like, it is as small as a thumb and the size of a bumblebee when it is born. The size so, of a bumblebee. I know. It is, it is tiny. Um, and they wanted to draw attention to the country's only um, native land mammal because they are um, at threat uh, 
just like native birds, um, you know, rats, possum, uh, stoats and cats are all major threats to the species. And um, it's been reported that the population of this long-tailed bat is declining roughly 5% a year. So they really wanted to, yeah, raise some awareness Look, I'm okay with this kind of rigged election. It's fine. (laughs) Especially for something so cute. That's Uh, its only mammal on... Yeah, native land land mammal. Yeah. So if you you don't know what it looks like, please start your day right and Google... (laughs) (laughs) Find it on Google Images. Um, I really liked this section from The Guardian, uh, which reported on this. They said that in 2019, the arrival of hundreds of votes from Russia sparked claims of election meddling (laughs) as part of the Aotearoa Bird of the Year. Of the votes were ultimately judged legitimate and Forest and Bird's spokesperson said at the time that interest from Russian um, ornithologists may be responsible. <laughs> um, the, the year before that, Forest and Bird, who's responsible for this competition, um, alleged that 300 fraudulent votes were cast in the online ballot by Australians <gasps> attempting to rig the contest in favour of the shag. So it's, oh wait, so it was not the Russians that do, that was doing the vote rigging. It was us. It was us. Yeah. So twenty nineteen, there were some votes from Russia, but they were deemed legitimate. In twenty eighteen, votes from here. That's, yeah. So uh, it's it's all, it's a controversial absolutely event every year. I, I like that the second place winner, or would have, and also last year's champion was the kakapo, which is a very um, social media famous ground bird. Um, it's like a fat green it's parrot. It's really big. Oh, it's oh, yeah. Um, it actually became infamous in like, I want to say like 2008, 2009, because Stephen Fry was filming some sort of documentary and one of these kakapo jumped on one of his co-host's shoulders and like started having sex with his head. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just remember that video going online, going <laughs> viral. So, yeah, uh, the kakapo's definitely gotten enough attention for now. Um, in other news (laughs) I didn't want to cut it off (laughs) anyway no kidding Um, I'm not going to dwell on this too long but it is Melbourne Cup Day which means there's some sort of race going on somewhere uh, within the vicinity (laughs) Um, with some horses and everything but um, as we were talking about before it's been a bit hush hush in terms of usually the Melbourne Cup obviously stirs a lot of controversy in terms of animal welfare even this year there's been um, I believe a horse death already Um, but a lot of media enterprises have been very quiet on critiquing it but I'm sure that there will be protesters as there are every year outside of Flemington um also the Guardian wrote an article about exactly what has been done this year in terms of um a lot of the controversy about from the previous years and if they've addressed anything like that and it says you know that they're trying to prevent horse deaths and races um they're trying to do this trying to do that but I mean yeah Mm. (laughs) it's socially unpopular but also like you know uh, like every year it just seems like there's a sense of embarrassment around it can I plug uh if people want to listen to some uh an interview or discussion surrounding the Melbourne Cup controversy Jacob and I did speak to Christian from the Coalition for the Protection of Horses yesterday which you can access 3CR dot org dot au forward slash monday breakfast yeah. uh, we did talk about yeah the, the ongoing mistreatment exploitation of horses and it's 
really horrific, actually. It starts from as soon as, soon as they're born, basically. Um, I think a lot of people think, you know, on the race course it's really bad because you actually see what mm. can happen, but it's all the suffering that happens behind the scenes before and after the actual event itself, so. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, and then we've also got the, of course, if, if anyone's on social media at the moment, you'll have seen... Scott Morrison at um, the climate summit kind of bumbling his way <laughs> through. Yeah, so this is like, so just to give some background, the COP26 um, climate summit is happening right now in Glasgow um, over the next couple of days. Um, we'll hopefully be able to talk to someone about that next week, just in the summary. Um, it is supposed to be a summit talking about how the urgent need for um very serious moves on stopping climate change um of course australia not really covering itself in glory in this regard we're not even committed to making a promise for 2050 um scott morrison has turned up and most of the coverage or attention seems to be on the fact that um australia uh, scra uh, scrapped a submarines deal with France. And so, yes, uh, Carnegie, as, as Carnegie mentioned, there's a lot of uh, back and forth between the two of them about how they're hurt and all their hurt feelings. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, it, far be it for me to be annoyed that this is completely distracted from the fact that this is supposed to be a climate mm. summit. But, um, yeah, it, it just sort of shows how Australia is viewed on the world stage as well. And it's incredibly embarrassing. Yeah, definitely. It's not ideal, is it? Um, yeah, and then, Jen, did you want to give us a little bit of an update on what's happening in Sudan? Yeah, just quickly, because I would love to get an expert on to talk about Sudan, because I am definitely not an expert um, on the country, but uh, anti-coup protesters have manned barricades in Sudan's capital a day after a deadly crackdown on mass rallies as, uh, I guess, defiant civil disobedience campaigns against the military takeover, which happened just about a week ago. Ago, So there's a little bit of resistance, well, not a little bit, a lot of resistance to the military takeover, uh, where tens of thousands turned out across the country for Saturday's demonstrations, uh, marching against the army's uh, power grab and the top general, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, dissolved the government and declared a state of emergency and detained Sudan's civilian leadership. Uh, so really concerning um this military coup and I don't really think it's getting enough attention on the meat uh, I guess the grand media scale uh, considering I guess Sudan's uh, history of uh, civil war and everything but it, yeah it would be really interesting to get an expert on and to really divulge this subject because yeah it seems to be escalating at a really fast rate. Yeah absolutely um, we'll keep everyone updated on what's happening um, as the situation progresses. All right, well, we will be right back after this. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. 
visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're going to play a song now, and this is a new track uh, from British-based artist Green Tea Peng, um, and uh, she's partnered up with uh, producer Swindle, and this is a song called What More. on the floor I solemnly swear that I am up to nothing but mischief I kick it in different flippant states of mind take my time to write my rhymes and feel inspired disillusion is tiring the saboteur keep conspiring these dirty truths keep transpiring I keep my head up in spite of things what more than Manifestation, manipulate and regulate your own space is what you make of it. No use of complaining, we practicing raising new ways of sustaining source energy, transmitting frequencies, self destructive tendencies make your spirit bleed.
That was a track by Green Tea Peng and Swindle called What More. We're going to jump straight into a conversation now that happened uh, earlier this year between Professor Eleanor Burke, who is a Rogaya Womba Womba elder and is the chair of the Yuruk Justice Commission. Professor Burke has held executive positions in the community, state and federal government agencies. And as part of the radio reimagined programming that happened uh, and was produced, sorry, at 3CR, Eleanor spoke to her niece, which is singer-songwriter Alice Skye, about her life, Indigenous culture and community. My name is Eleanor Burke. I'm a Wurgaya Wamba Wamba woman. I live in Lismore, Victoria, on Wadawurrung country. I'm currently the chairperson of the Europe Justice Commission, which is a royal commission into Aboriginal affairs since colonisation. And me, I'm Alice Skye. I am also a Wagaya Wemba Wemba woman. I'm Eleanor's niece. I am a singer-songwriter and I live in Melbourne, but I'm from Horsham uh, in Western Victoria, Wachabalik country. Okay, some context before we have a chat. You're my auntie, the eldest sibling on my dad's side, and I'm his youngest child of my siblings. I'm quite a lot younger than the rest of the cousins. I'd say you're like our matriarch of the family, and I'm very aware that you've lived lots of lives and done lots of different things in spaces that I guess I consider activist spaces but I wanted to know do you think of the work you do as activism or do you think of yourself as an activist or how do you describe the things that you do? Well things that I have done have been a progression to where I am now but when you start out you don't think like that but I have been called a radical, an activist. You know if you go out and you know, support the people in a, in a march for NADOC. You know, it was seen as radical earlier on, but that was only one part of our identity, our celebration of existence at, at the time that that happened. All of that time I lived in Melbourne, uh, then Canberra and then uh, Adelaide, working either in education or in uh, the public service. And I've worked in both the state government here in Victoria. I was Aboriginal advisor to Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in the 70s. I was I went to Canberra and worked in the Commonwealth Department of uh, then Social Security and with the, um, the Central Office Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Services section, which was a wonderful experience because the work meant connection with every capital city around Australia and Aboriginal people that worked in those offices trying to help service uh, Aboriginal people for that department. And, of course, that created a network uh, nationally for me of people that I would never have met otherwise. Wonderful experience. And some of those people, sadly, have passed on, but some are still with us. And I guess we watch each other's progress over the years. So it's a sort of a progressive journey. You know, you can pick out a point in time and say a particular thing happened and you don't really think it's anything but a sequence to the last thing you did. 
uh, when you look back, I suppose, on all of the years, then it starts to uh, add up. And I would say in relation to getting to the Uruk Justice Commission, the last 20 years, that is this century, this century has been key because I actually retired from permanent work in 2001 but continued serving on committees either for education or land justice and various other committees in the, within that 20 years. And that led to the work on the Victorian Treaty and the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission as chairperson to the advisory group for treaty. Uh, so that was a, a seemed to be like a natural progression of things that had happened in Victoria. At the same time, in those 20 years, we owned a farm and share farmed. We even share farmed to dad's farm for six years as well, uh, Red Rock. And we also then sold that property and went to uh, Nurit and bought us a pub and were there for five years and still continued working in uh, Aboriginal affairs on committees and so on. Uh, Colin with Monash University and myself with the committees around what turns out to be a pathway to uh, where we are now and also on uh, matters of importance in relation to Aboriginal cultural heritage matters. Yes, I remember you talking something about around the area you're living in now and some revegetation of land. Am I remembering that right? That, that's about a project here. I, I live on Wadarong land here and I um, should pay my respects to their elders because I'm so grateful to be in such a beautiful part of this state. And when we came here, we found some people who were very interested in native, so-called native vegetation, that is plants that were here before Europeans ripped up the land and changed it. As there's some places here where they thrive and these settler families look after that very, very well. So there was an opportunity for a parcel of land just inside the town to be sold and it wasn't sold and this group of people were interested in developing uh, an Indigenous garden and what's happened is um, the site has been acquired. It was an old, uh, initially an old bowling green and then became a croquet site I think. When that club folded it was because the um, members had got elderly and there were no more people coming on, uh, it was put up for sale by the council, but nobody wanted it. But our neighbours and friends in the group thought it would be a good idea to approach the council and see whether such a project could be developed. And it has been agreed, and the council is currently leasing that. We're in fact this year have put in some very small trial beds to see how the plants react to the existing soil because of its past history it has quite a history the land was given to I think it was the RSL initially and then to then went to these two clubs that I talked about with the establishment of that there will be a story about that as well as the story about the original vegetation that has caused people to take an interest and protect and to share that 
in the place that it belongs. Yeah, I really like what you just said about the history of the soil. That's a big sentiment here, considering all the stories that we hold across the hundreds and hundreds of countries that are here in Australia, the up to 500, I think, different Aboriginal nations. Yes, well, certainly languages, yes. Just wanted to go back to done so much. You've lived what seems to me many lives and I love the history you have in not just activism spaces and Aboriginal affairs, but the pub too that you worked at and apparently Eleanor's Tavern. That was um, a restaurant in Canberra in Kingston, an inner suburb of Canberra. And for about 18 months, I was very bored with the public service at that time. And that, we did that for a year. <laughs> yes. I love that. But I wanted to go back to the York Justice Commission that you're now working in. Yeah, maybe would you want to give background to people who aren't aware of what that is or coming up with that? Well, I should explain that the Europe Justice Commission was created after the First People's Assembly uh, lobbied the government to create a truth and justice exercise in Victoria as part of preparation for treaties or treaty in Victoria because First Peoples believe that you need the truth in order to make treaties. We're not totally convinced everybody knows the truth about the settlement, the impact impact on Aboriginal people, First Peoples, and that that impact continues to today. So the government accepted the First Peoples Assembly recommendation. A representative body across the state of 31 members of First Peoples who have been elected to advise the government on how to progress the idea of treaty. The First Peoples also recommended to the government that such an activity as an inquiry into truth and justice on settlement and the impacts of colonisation on Victorian uh, Aboriginal people should take place as a foundational piece of work. It has other objectives, but that's one of the base objectives because of the status of Aboriginal people still in some areas, uh, the fact that people are still dying in custody in this state and that some people don't have the same opportunities yet as some other Australians for different reasons and an example of that could be you know if they're on Lake Tyres mission or Framlingham mission they're not close to uh, employment opportunities that every other people they would have to go to a town so that's that's a kind of thing where there was a dislocation movement of people to the fringes and families have stayed there for two or three or more generations. What amazes me so much about all the work that you've done and are doing is I guess we're constantly at different stages of this fight for truth, for treaties, for real conversations and real change, I suppose. Sometimes I feel like yeah, maybe my generation and the fight, the stage of the fight that we're at is different than when you first started working in these spaces. 
which I think was the 60s and 70s around about then when you were in Melbourne. Yes, well, it is very different because in, the, in those days people would say to me when I came to live in Melbourne, going to work in a big international company, uh, why do you call yourself Aboriginal? Well, obviously because I am, but the question was why I could pass for something else. So that was shocking you know, to me. Why would I want to be someone else? We were suppressed in a way from calling ourselves by our names like Woodagaya and Wham, but we always knew, always knew about Woodagaya, always because of my grandmother. So that word was familiar and known and eventually Wamba because I lived at that time as a child on a farm in the Murray Valley outside Swan Hill, not far from Lake Boga, where our Wamba ancestors originate from. So those things come in fairly quickly into your, your memory bank. And, of course, my grandmother was a very, very proud woman, a very elegant woman, a woman who was a storyteller. And she made me very proud to be Aboriginal, and that was okay until I went to school and then there was the same sort of reaction as I got when I went to Melbourne, you know, that I was different, but the reaction there was to be beaten up by some boys you know, on the way home, which was a pretty common thing. Kelly had it happen to her when she went to school in Melbourne. You know, and, and it was just, you know, there wasn't even malice sometimes. It was just because you were the different kid in the, the school. I mean, it's quite crazy when you think about it. We're certainly bullying, certainly bullying. It did have an element of racism because I was a brown girl you know, and I was the only brown girl in that school. So these things, go, you know, went on for generations. And as I say, when I went to Melbourne, you know, for a long, long time, we talked about land rights. We talked about the need for equal opportunities, but we were still not using our names in public. Just didn't seem it wasn't acceptable. You know, we talk about land rights in a very generic way, but not saying a place or our names and relating it to the place. That only happened uh, later where it feels like, to me, I'm, having gone to live in Canberra in the early 80s and then coming back to Victoria at the end of the 1990s, there was such a big difference. I came back to Victoria where everybody was identifying themselves by who they were. And that doesn't mean people didn't know. People were saying it inside family groups, inside community conversations, but it wasn't a public conversation. When you think about it, it's quite shocking, really. It's quite shocking that that kind of suppression happened. So, yes, your, your battle will be different uh, in, in many ways, but you have a cohort of fellow brothers and sisters really around the country through your work, Alice. Uh, you are like my example of uh, my national network when in that particular job I had. You have that kind of network. So you can all get out there and pass your message in so many different ways, which I think is wonderful, which wasn't really happening in a big way. We had Aboriginal singers. I didn't have the exposure. There were one or two famous people. But mostly we'd have liked to have a ball or a dance and have somebody sing and we'd be really happy to be with each other. 
That was a conversation that was had earlier this year between Professor Eleanor Bork, a Waragaya Womba Womba elder, in conversation with her niece, singer-songwriter Alice Skye, as part of the radio reimagined programming that was produced at 3CR. That was such an incredible interview. Um, all right, well, next up we've got um, this morning with us Dr. Anuba Sarkar, she is a uh, lecturer from Monash University in Cultural and Creative Studies, and she has done her PhD on Bollywood and soft power, um, which is a super interesting topic given what's going on in India at the moment. Um, and Anubha has recently written an article for South Asian Today called um, How Bollywood Silence Proved Convenient for India's Right Wing. Welcome to the show, Anubha. Thank you so much. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Um, yeah. Just to kind of start off with, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background about yourself and how you came to research Bollywood and soft power? Yes. So um, I'm originally from India, and my educational background is in journalism and communication, and I was involved in media production back in India. And then I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD and I wanted to combine my previous educational experience, which was in films and generally in film theory. And um, because I traveled around as well, I was quite curious to understand as to why people from, say, Azerbaijan to even Germany uh, knew about Bollywood. And that line of thinking uh, made me pursue this PhD on Bollywood and soft power to understand what is it about Bollywood that attracts people. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, I grew up in Bombay as well and I've mm-hmm. traveled a bit and I've also noticed that Bollywood is kind of everywhere and people are really interested in it. And yeah, it's got a much more of a reach than I thought when I still lived in India. Um, yeah. I guess for some of our listeners who may not be too familiar with uh, mm-hmm. how powerful Bollywood is and how it kind of connects to Indian politics, can you give us a bit of an overview on, on the links between the two? So um, it's important to understand that one of the things is that with Bollywood, it wasn't until the year 1998 that India's film industry was recognized by the Indian government. And... By this, what I mean is that until the year 1998, the film industry was part of the informal sector, which is why the finances were murky. They had to rely on black money. Mm. So since you are from sorry, since you are from Bombay, you, you will remember reports on how there was money from the underworld or linked to underworld who were based in Pakistan. It was because the film industry was part of the informal sector. And it was only after 1998, once the Indian government officially recognized it, filmmakers and production houses they could officially take loans from the government. Another aspect is that cinema is not formally considered as part of culture. So it does not really come under the Ministry of Culture. It comes under the Ministry of Commerce and Ministry of Information and Broadcasting, Mm. which is interesting if you think about the kind of popularity that Bollywood has, you would assume that it is uh, cultural, that it is considered part of heritage. But in formal documents, it isn't. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I I don't think that a lot of people would would know that. Um, and that kind mm-hmm. of makes sense that it's more linked to um, the current government, which is the BJP, um, who. Mm-hmm. In the past few years, there's been a bit of a surge of Hindu nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of far-right ideology is being pushed. Um, yeah. And the government kind of having more and more power to dictate what they consider is moral or mm-hmm. not moral in film and social media and even in everyday life. Um, yeah, can you tell us a bit about the effect this has had on Bollywood films and the industry? Yes, so, okay, it's important to understand, like I outlined, because the industry was only recognized in 1998, for decades, the industry has struggled with legal legitimacy and even cultural legitimacy. And because the legal and industrial legitimacy was not there, it had to rely more on people, the public, that are consuming the film. Yeah. So when I wrote the article, this is why I say that it's the public that has more of a hold on the film industry than the government explicitly does. Which is why in the, since 2014, given the rise in sentiments about um, uh, sentiments on right, Hindu right wing, um, the public is able to influence Bollywood more and more. So anything that comes out, any new film, anything that is determined as, okay, this is anti-Hindu, immediately you have certain groups that start protesting and that has an impact. So even though the government is not explicitly saying anything, it's not like they have outlined any guidelines that, Mm. no, that films cannot depict this or films cannot depict this. No, none of that is happening. It's happening in a more indirect manner also because they can't really explicitly do that yeah and i think that you mentioned um a really interesting aspect in your article which is that Mm -hmm. the leading male actors in bollywood have for a very long time all been muslim Mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting uh thing in the pushing of the propaganda and this and that it's kind of used as a false narrative you know, as an attack on Hinduism, um, which is, you know, yeah. for our listeners who might not know, the the main actors in Bollywood are Shah Rukh Khan, Amir Khan, Salman Khan. They're all Khans. They're all Muslim. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about how, how that's been happening? Okay. So if we go into the history of Bollywood, uh, and I'll go back a bit before the partition of India in 1947, it's important to understand at that time, it wasn't just Bombay that was the center of film production. You had Bombay, you had Madras, you had Calcutta, and you had Lahore. And there was a lot of uh, cross-pollination. So people would be working across industries. And at that time, when films would be released, they would be dubbed in different languages as well. There's a reason why, if you still see, you know, when Bollywood films are released, you also have the Urdu titles and English titles and Hindi titles. So at that time, uh, and when uh, the partition happened, you had a lot of movement from Lahore because the film industry over there, there was a lot of movement from there that shifted to Bombay after partition. 
there are again historical reasons as to why Bombay uh, ended up being the prominent film industry, um, which is why all of this language, the kind of people who came into Bombay, it ended up being a part of it being uh, ended up uh, Muslim dominated. It's not because Bollywood uh, encourages Islam or there's any kind yeah. of Hinduphobia. No, it's because of historical reasons. Yeah, and that that's really interesting as well. That um, because I think for people who may not know that history, yeah. Bom- Bombay is is a super multicultural big city like it's a metro mm-hmm. hub where where there's people of every religion language and culture from india um yeah. and so they may but if you don't know that history that where that kind of started it might be easier to buy into these kind of subtle um this messaging from you know the right-wing trolls yes um i'll just add one more thing just to you know contextualize it a bit more yeah. so bombay is a port city and immediately after independence of India, that is where all activity, all commercial activity got concentrated. So there was a lot of money. And since there was a lot of money, uh, all the businessmen, the newly uh, new new business class, they wanted to invest some of their money. And, part, and they invested some of it in the film industry. And uh, in the field that I'm researching in, there is documented history on how there's a link between Port cities, the rise of port cities, commercial activity, and investment in the arts and investment in the creative industries. So there's a direct link over there. Yeah, that completely makes a lot of sense as well. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of go over is, yeah. you know, in in India, Bollywood stars have a lot of power. They they kind of put on these pedestals and have kind of like a godlike mm-hmm. status almost. And like you said, like you were explaining before, the industry is informed by the public, but it's kind of like a reciprocal relationship where then Bollywood Mm -hmm. informs culture so much. Um, What do you think is the responsibility of these actors and directors and producers who have so much power to kind of combat this kind of messaging? Ah, this is a complicated one because, look, just to, you know, if we observe what has been happening the past few years, any time an actor or actress has tried to even speak out, look at the kind of reception they've received. Mm. Uh, and it's quite difficult in such a scenario to always have a stand unless and until, you know, you come from some kind of backing, you have some kind of support. So um, even though they are in positions of power, having that kind of fine to I think our environment is such, our society is such that it does not enable people in power to speak out. Because it's not just Bollywood, even cricket. Cricket is also huge, yeah. where cricketers are given godlike status. But even they do not speak out during important events. Yeah, I that's the thing that I've noticed very much and it you know when you from afar it kind of I sit there and I'm like you need to you need to say something. But you're right, it's societally it's very very difficult to speak up and we've seen time and again what happens mm-hmm. when they do. But um yeah, it's a it's a complex and kind of um difficult situation that India's in at the moment with the governments 
um, the way, the direction in which um, we're going. But this has been really, really informative and interesting. That's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Anuva. Thank you for the invitation. It was lovely talking. Um, if for anyone else who wants to know a bit more about this, we will link to Anubha's article in our show notes later today. And we'll be right back after this. Okay. Bye-bye. Possum Portraits is a non-profit bereavement care service supporting parents who have lost a baby to miscarriage, stillbirth and neonatal death. We provide families with hand-drawn, commemorative keepsake portraits of their baby free of charge. In support of our mission, we are hosting a community fundraising raffle. The prize draw will be held on November 6th. Prizes include a $300 Gorman online shop voucher, hampers, term memberships for kids' music and activity classes, and much more. To buy your raffle tickets, head to possumportraits.com.au forward slash events and win some great prizes while supporting an important cause. Possum Portraits is a 3CR supporter. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's 10 to 8 and we're going to go to a track that I've been playing on repeat. (laughs) Um, But it's a really good one. Um, A bit of a guilty pleasure um, song, but it's called Sad Girls Love Money. (laughs) And it's by Amare, Molly and Kali Uchis. Just a little bit of a language warning on this one, but hope you enjoy it. There's dollars all around Dollar, dollar bills, yeah Dollar, dollar bills Carly Yeah, you've been staring at me What can we read is? I don't really know how long now Pues, como cien millones de besos todo el día, hasta un lítico que me da alegría. 
Sabes que yo quiero hacerte cosas sucias Y quemarte con estas caricias Tu lengua en todo mi cuerpo Cuando terminas te quedas por dentro Tu lengua en todo mi cuerpo Y cuando terminas te quedas por dentro Just playing over the back there was Sad Girls Love Money uh, featuring Kali Uchi. <laughs> Sorry, I just love saying the title. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> featuring Kali Uchi's Amare and Molly. That was a really good song. It was a great song. How fun is it? Yeah. Also, yeah, like possibly the most perfect title for a song. Also, same. Yeah, just sad girl. Yeah. <laughs> Anything sad girl. Um, are we feeling the kind of morning where we have another song? Yeah. Yes. Let's go for it. What's next? Um, well, I really want to play. It's like an old, old favorite of <laughs> mine. Um, I guess keeping to the theme of girls. Um, it's by... The American band um, Slater Kinney. And I still love them so much. Yeah. I mean, I same. still love them so much. Um, and it's their um, song called Modern Girl. Amazing. My baby loves me, I'm so happy, happy makes 
was the song um, Modern Girl by Slater Kenny. Joining us now to speak with us about gendered cyber hate and the ongoing challenges regarding online safety for women is Caitlin McGrain from Gender Equity Victoria. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me. Um, could you please start by introducing yourself a little bit and telling us a bit more about Gen Vic? Sure. So Gender Equity Victoria, also known as GenVic, is the peak body for gender equity, the prevention of violence against women and women's health in Victoria. And I'm Caitlin McGrain and I run and lead their projects addressing gendered cyber hate, which we've been working on for about three years now. Thank you for that. Um, I read in an article from the ABC that was published April this year, that 65% of girls and women have reported being harassed and abused online. And we know that it is especially dangerous for First Nations women, Black women, Muslim women, and other women of colour as the online abuse and harassment targets both gender and race or religion. Could you tell us more about some of the findings you've made through your research into gendered cyber hate? Absolutely. And I would just start by saying that Genvic um, has done some really great research, but we are not, I wouldn't say we're the experts on um, the gendered harassment of um, women of colour, first, particularly I would say First Nations women. There's mm-hmm. some really great work being done by Bronwyn Carlson at Macquarie University looking at um, the experience of particularly First Nations women in Australia. First Nations people in Australia more generally. Um, But what we have found is absolutely that it is especially dangerous online for people whose identity becomes the target of multiple sort of aspects of, or their multiple aspects of their identity become the target of harassment. So it's not just on gender, it'll be on gender, race, culture, union status. You know, there's, there's, um, it's very rarely just about one aspect of their identity. Mm. Um, and that's sort of, that's been something that we found throughout our work is that it, and that just, it's it's quite disturbing that it hasn't, it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. Like that's something that we really, are, it, it is really quite disturbing that it isn't, um, it isn't really changing that much. Yeah, and um, I just wanted to 
add a comment about that. You know, we saw last week um, the uh, Mark Zuckerberg releasing, you know, or introducing us to the metaverse and, and you know, it's supposed to be this like exciting innovation, but all I could think about was just more ways for for uh, women and other marginalized communities to be uh, harassed online. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big challenges um, with talking about gendered cyber hate and online harassment more generally is that really without um, big changes to the ways that platforms make money, Mm. we are probably going to continue to see this kind of abuse and harassment. Um, We're going to see it continue um, just because the ways that the sort of algorithms that they rely on to kind of get more attention and get more engagement, they're the things that are prioritised over the um, creation of sort of safer communities, more positive in interactions. They're really sort of they're really after engagement and what gets engagement is um sort of the more ex- like the, those sort of extreme ends of um they're not even discourse, I suppose. It's mm. harassment and abuse. Yeah, these big companies can't can't really profit from mm. um people feeling safe and No, that's it. Yeah. That's it harnessing some sort of, you know, lovely community feeling online. That's Um, it. Due to the vastness of the internet and, you know, the sometimes anonymity of its users, it can be really hard to to navigate the process of reporting online harassment. I think personally, when I've thought about, you know, reporting things, usually it's like you you click a button on any of the social media platforms and that's supposed to you know, take care of the situation. But um, could you tell us what can women do uh, when faced with this type of online harassment? So you're right that it is a bit, um, the current options are a little bit rubbish. Um, But the three sort of main areas that we have looked at are reporting to the platforms, reporting to something like the eSafety Commissioner, and uh, reporting to uh, the police. So obviously none of those options are great, but reporting to the platform can be a really good place to start because sometimes they do take things down, Um, especially if it's really egregious abuse. They will often sort of, or they can, I'm not going to say often, they can take that stuff down. Um, And then reporting to the e-safety commissioner can be a really good way of getting an experience documented somewhere and having, you know, having the experience of collecting the evidence, taking screenshots of it and then reporting it to them. But for them to, to for them to take action, it has to reach, they can put pressure on platforms, but it does have to reach a particular threshold for them to be able to take any action. So for the kinds of abuse and harassment that lots of women and uh, other marginalised communities face, it, it can be very difficult to prove to basically like a white institution or a sort of particularly patriarchal institution that something has reached that threshold. And that's the same problem with reporting to the police. So I would say if people are going to go to the police, make sure you don't go alone. Go with somebody that you trust. Take down the details of the person that you speak to um, at the desk. And if you have a negative experience with them, let 
let us know. So you can email you can email me, and we also have a form on our website um, that people can tell us about any experiences they've had reporting online abuse with the with Victoria Police that haven't been received that well. And that's because we did a research, we did a bit of research and some work earlier this year looking at women's legal options when facing online online abuse. And as part of that, we spoke to and have been um, having sort of ongoing regular conversations with Victoria Police to try and improve their responses to this kind of reporting because they know and we know that it really has been... Um, quite inadequate I think in the mm. past and so trying to address that is a really is a really big concern because I think the thing the other thing is that when people go to the police I think um, you know there's it's a bit opaque about what they can expect to happen and I think one of the things that uh, we're trying to address is that you know when people come forward with abuse and when they talk about what's happening to them they don't necessarily want people to be arrested or they don't want um you know, someone to be sent to jail or whatever. Mm. They want, they just want someone to listen to them, to take it seriously and to take a record of it. And that's definitely been my own experience with um, Victoria Police, that uh, when I rang them and I said that something was happening, I was being um, abused and threatened online. Um, I didn't necessarily want them to kind of do anything I just wanted them to listen and to take mm. it seriously and to write and to like make a record of it and that's something that we've been working with them on improving their internal processes so that there are records of this stuff it does get sort of noted down so that if it happens in a similar way to a different person that there is this kind of chain of um this chain of records that shows that this is it's a pattern mm. um but like I said it's the police are not always considered safe for lots of people. So this kind of option isn't something that we suggest lightly. And that's why I'd say, like, go with somebody that you trust. Go with a friend. Um, don't, yeah, don't, don't try and do it alone. Yeah, that's really, that's really good um, advice. And what you were saying before about just wanting someone to listen, I think you're right. Like, I mean, ideally, you know, reporting this sort of, um, abuse and harassment to either the platforms themselves or, you know, the police. I mean, ideally, we just want it to stop, right? Mm, <laughs> um, that's it. Um, and, of course, you know, that's that's very difficult and um, I don't know how much institutions themselves can really police and, and, and make those changes. Um, but, yeah, I think that's really good that there are you know, several options for, for people if they are wanting to um, report um, abusive behaviour online. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to now touch on the 2019 um, Gen Vic uh, and the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance report that was launched to address the online abuse of, of women uh, journalists. The report called Don't Read the Comments, Enhancing Online Safety for Women Working in the Media. Could you tell us more about the report and the, the recommendations contained within? I know that, you know, um, I think we saw from the reporting of um, Brittany Higgins and, um, you know, Parliament House that a lot of the women journalists who were working on these stories 
were really subjected to a lot of of online abuse from other you know from politicians other journalists and just from the public um so yeah would you mind telling us more about this report absolutely so in this report so this was actually written by um a researcher in sydney called dr oishi alam she's a really wonderful researcher and has done a lot of work looking at um, bystander interventions with instances of, I think, racialized abuse. Um, and so she, we commissioned her to do this piece of research and she interviewed, I think, 12 women journalists in, in and around Sydney. So it's sort of Gen Vic, but, you know, we know that the internet covers... It's difficult to sort of keep that within a particular jurisdiction. Um, and so what we were interested in with this report is talking to women in the media about their experiences of online abuse and harassment and looking at the kind of the prevalence and the impact in particular. And what we found was that there was really a lack of institutional support for women journalists who were facing online abuse. So for the media organisations that they were writing for, not all of them were necessarily employed on a sort of an ongoing basis. A lot of them were freelance. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that once they submitted their invoice for the piece of writing, that was it. They were they were alone and they had to deal with all of this abuse in time, like of, often at home and often on their own. And what we recommend in this report is first and foremost to take a whole of organisation approach. So it doesn't just become the responsibility of the person dealing with it or being on the receiving end of it, it becomes something that everybody has to take responsible responsibility for. And it's something that the whole organisation talks about, which is really important for kind of addressing the, uh, addressing the prevalence of it. So it isn't just something that, you know, it doesn't, it gets talked about, it gets talked about in the open. People can feel free to, um, discuss it without being told you know well that's just the way that it is mm -hmm. I think that what we know is that like you said earlier there are sort of the abuse is particularly bad for people whose identity um, can become the target of multiple aspects of harassment and so when we need to really spread out that emotional labor and the emotional load of dealing with some of these comments and some of these um, messages and you know because obviously it's not always uh, in the. It's not always public. The abuse. It's often private, um, through different things like email or direct messages. Mm. So we really need to sort of be spreading out that emotional labour and having it. You know, having the whole organisation take responsibility for it. We also found that in a variety of different media organisations, their their moderation guidelines were not necessarily specifically addressed. They didn't necessarily specifically address gender. They were written in quite a sort of general way. Um, and they also were, so they weren't genders and they weren't intersectional either. So we applied a sort of intersectional feminist lens to some of these moderation guidelines and we've written some and you can download those on our website. Yep. And we also recommend, we also made a series of recommendations about the support that media outlets can give to women journalists and that's also available on our website and those are kind of those are supported by the MEAA so they're the best they're like best practice for the industry. 
Great. Thank you so much for that. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time this morning, sure. so, I, so I did, um, but I still wanted to ask you one more question. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to um, feel like you're making any progress in this area because, like you said, it just seems like this abuse is not slowing down. Um, mm. But, you know, what are some of the concrete ways that, that we, um, you know, and not just women, but just we as a community can ensure that women are safe online? That is a really good but very difficult question. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that one of the one of the main things, I'm working on a project at the moment looking at the online harassment and abuse of women in politics. And something that I'm finding is that the nature of our public sphere particularly in this country, mm. is, is it feels broken to me. And I think that one of the things that we can do as a community is really reckon with our past and really listen to um, and amplify the voices of First Nations women, particularly, because... Um, I think that in order that we need to really change the nature of public discourse, and I think part of doing that is really, um, yeah, reckoning with our past, um, telling the truth about uh, where we what's what's happened here, and I think that will then build a more equitable future. And I'm thinking about um, listening to people like Doctor or Professor, sorry, Chelsea Botego. Mm. Um, and kind of amplifying those voices because, and Amy McGuire as well, obviously, who's got a great, um, a great newsletter called Presence, which people can subscribe to, um, and like really addressing the kind of the the biggest injustices in this country. I think will uh, then have the flow-on effect of ensuring that more people are safe online or feel safe online. Definitely, and I think that's such an important note to end on. Um, uh, I too recently started subscribing to Amy McQuire's newsletter, um, yeah. and and you're right. Um, you know, it is you know justice for First Nations people will mean there is justice for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it does mean, like you said, reckoning with with the past and and also just with ongoing, mm. you know. Um, violent practices that are Absolutely. that are state sanctioned so um yeah lots to lots to think about but um thank you so much caitlin for for joining us on 3cr today um we would love to continue this discussion with you so perhaps we can have you on at a later date but yeah we'll pop all those links that you mentioned in our show notes um later this morning but thanks again for joining us thanks so much for having me from it was really great to talk to you thanks so that was Caitlin McGreen from uh, Gen Vic who spoke with us about gendered cyber hate and um, the ways in which uh, we can keep each other safe. Um, she also gave us some good uh, tips to, um, well, yeah, uh, steps to take if we, if we need to uh, report any online abuse. Um, we're going to jump into another interview straight away now. Um, 
we're, we're now joined by Dr. Meredith Bergman, who is the former president of the New South Wales Legislative Council and is also founder of the Ernie's Awards for Sexism. Dr. Bergman joins us this morning on 3CR Breakfast to talk about this year's winning remarks. Welcome to 3CR, Dr. Bergman. Oh, good morning. Um, could you please start by introducing yourself and telling us how you came to um, create the Ernie's Awards? Yes, well, I'm a, a former uh, academic and union activist because I was... Listen, I'm getting a, a echo on this. Is, is that a problem for you? Um, where I you, can hear myself. Oh, you sound um, great to us, so oh, right <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine on our end, yep. Okay, good. Yes, well, I was a, a union activist, and um, this is talking about 30 years ago, uh, a group of trade union women were really pleased when a terrible old sexist trade unionist who'd made our lives a misery, um, a bloke called Ernie Ecob, he announced his retirement and we decided to have a lunch to uh, celebrate the fact. And at that lunch, 43 women turned up and we uh, gave a trophy for the uh, most sexist remark of the year. And from that lunch sprang the Ernie Awards, and um, it's now been going for 30 years. Uh, and there are uh, six different categories. You know, there's the political award, the industri- industrial award, uh, the Warney for sport. And, of course, we now also have a Elaine Award for women who make the remark least helpful to the sisterhood. Oh, that's an amazing history of the awards. I, I do have to say 30 years of Ernie Awards, that's amazing that it's been going on for so long, but also really upsetting that, you know, we've <laughs> got... get better. No, exactly. We've got 30 years of sexist remarks and it and it yeah. doesn't seem to be uh, stopping any time soon. But each year I think to myself, oh, we won't have an Ernie's next year because no one will say anything terrible. <laughs> and in fact, this year was it was an actual bumper uh, award. I mean, it's re- it's really sad that for the last two years we haven't been able to have the big dinner that we have at Parliament House, where three hundred and fifty women turn up and we rate the awfulness of the comments by how la- loud the boos are. <laughs> we we call it our booze and booze night <laughs> because that, women get a bit get, get a bit tight. It sounds like a emotional, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a quite a raucous event, but um, mm. I, I imagine the the atmosphere would be quite amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and and all the women always say <clears throat> that they feel so much better mm. after it because they've managed to boo themselves into a better state. Yeah, it's almost a cathartic um, yes, <laughs> experience. They use, they use the word cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So speaking of. 2021 this year was a big year for sexist remarks um you know in politics we had um with the news of Brittany Higgins coming forward and um and talking about um you know the the hideous sort of culture of harassment and abuse and and the silencing of women in parliament house um could you talk us through some of the remarks that were nominated for an Ernie this year and and we, we will just have to be a bit careful um, when when speaking about um, you know the these individuals but yeah what were some of the remarks that were were nominated and that won well well a lot of the 
remarks were uh, made around the time of the Brittany Higgins and the Christian Porter incident uh, issues at Parliament House. Um, the original Ernie Award, the, the Gold Ernie, was um, given to uh, Senator Erica Betts, who, who was alleged to have said something rather awful. We can't, we can't say that now because he denies having said it. So the Gold Ernie has now gone to um, Scott Morrison, who actually said three extraordinary things. Mm. Um, the first one was that, you know, talking about the Brittany Higgins rape allegations, he said... Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things. Well, of course, the women always hate that. Mm. Um, the idea that you can only react to some terrible uh, crime by referring to your own children. It's a shocking thing to say. Anyway, mm. and the second one, and I actually think this one's worse, was when the the huge Women's March for Justice was outside Parliament House and the Prime Minister didn't go out and meet them, but he said inside Parliament, this is a vibrant liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches even now are being met with bullets, but not here in this country. Yes. <laughs> and the final one was what he said to Grace Tame after she had made her Australian of the Year speech about um, child sexual abuse. And he said to her, well, gee, I bet it felt good to get that out. So a, a bit of a tin ear, I think. Yes. But but the, um, I mean, there are some some other terrible comments. Um, the media, Silver M. Ernie, went to a South Australian radio host, um, Jeremy Cordeau, talking about the Brittany Higgins allegations, who said, I just asked myself why the Prime Minister doesn't call it out for what it is. A silly little girl who got drunk. It's, he, actually, yeah. he actually lost his job over that. Um, and the, the, sport, the sport award, which is called the Warney, Ricky Stewart, who's the coach of the Canberra Raiders, said, if I can't have tough conversations with my better players, I might as well coach netball. <laughs> I mean, he, ouch. He obviously doesn't know much about netball if he thinks that they wouldn't be as tough as his, uh, oh, his uh, players. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, I would invite him to <laughs> just any netball match. It is, it's a very, in, it's very intense competition. It is, certainly. And for the, the Elaine Award, um, for the remarks least helpful to the sisterhood, there was a dead heat between um, uh, Minister uh, Linda Reynolds referring to Brittany Higgins, who said she's a lying cow. Mm. And Tina McQueen, who's the Federal Liberal Party Vice President, commented in a meeting, I would kill to be sexually harassed at the moment, mm. which is just so 1950s. It's, um, yeah, and of course we have the good Ernie for, um, to encourage men to behave better. We call it for boys behaving better. Okay. And, uh, and that's, that was a dead heat between a Liberal MP, Russell Broadbent, so we, we try to be equal opportunity um, offenders. We, yeah. we try to support even the Conservatives when they do good things. He, uh, Russell Broadbent asked the Prime Minister con to convene a national gathering of women and, and asked that all Cabinet submissions, new policies and legislation have a gender impact statement and that politicians need to be quiet, listen and learn. Mm -hmm. 
Mind you, he asked for all that and didn't get any of it. But um, but he tried. But he tried. Mm-hmm. And the other one is for Richard Hines, who's an ABC sports reporter and who's always very good. And he, he wrote, I've no idea whether Rugby Australia CEO Raylene Castle was a good CEO or a disaster. I'm 100% certain women in power are still held to a much higher account than men. Mm. So he really understands, you know, what it's like to be a woman in in those sorts of positions. Definitely. Um, well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that, you know, the Ernie's weren't able to be celebrated in person this year. Um, if anyone is curious, you should definitely go on the Ernie's website because the photos... Yeah, yes. really, really um, tell you how much fun is had at these events. Um, it is, uh, and it, it's au, and you've got to add the AU or you get um, Ernie's fishing tips from Nebraska. <laughs> That's <laughs> a, a really... Thank you. That's a really <laughs> important note. Um Meredith, we only have a, a one, uh, enough time for one more question. Um, do you think uh, one day, and maybe this is a bittersweet question, do you think one day we'll get to a point where the Ernie's Awards will no longer exist? As I say, each year I hope that that'll be the case. Mm. But we do have uh, peaks and troughs. Um, during Julia Gillard's prime ministership, it got particularly awful and then it got a bit better. And I think this year's just been awful again. Um, and I think it is to do a bit with leadership of the nation. Certainly some categories have got better. Trade union officials are now really good, mm. probably mirror, mirroring the fact that so many of them now are women. Um, you know, we're led at the Sally McManus and, uh, you know, the leadership is now female. And also judges are now much better than they were. But um, politicians and sports people are still really, they just have a bad mindset, a lot of them. Mm. Yes. Well, I think, you know, what it will take, it will be some serious systemic institutional changes, um, yes. which, you know, is, is a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, in the meantime, I guess we, you know, have the Ernie Awards to look forward to as, you know, like we were saying before, um, a, a cathartic process, um, you know, to to boo all the hideous That's remarks right. that have been made about and to women um, every year. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Meredith Bergman, for joining us on the show today. Um, we will definitely pop the the link to the Ernie's Award so that our listeners can, can view all the winning comments from this year. Um, and we look forward to, I don't know if that's the right phrase, um, <laughs> to next year's winners. Uh, thank you again for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So that was Dr. Meredith Bergman, who is the former president of the New South Wales Legislative, I can't say the words, Legislative Council, and also founder of the Ernie's Awards for Sexism. Um, Yeah, some winning remarks in, in, in the list this morning. Yeah, um, that was an absolutely enlightening interview. That looks so. It, it sounds fun. Like, I want to. I was I looking go. through the photos and they're all dressed up. Yes, it looks so much fun. They were seeing the most fun award I just show. think booing, like you know, if you've got like a whole crowd of people booing these terrible, like awful, misogynistic remarks, I think you would feel 
a little yeah. bit better yeah. <laughs> afterwards. I think so. Mm. Anyway, that was a great show mm. this morning. Mm. Um, we had a few um, really interesting interviews. We started off by listening to Professor Eleanor Burke speak with her niece, um, singer-songwriter Alice Skye, um, which was a really great conversation, um, after which I spoke with uh, lecturer of cultural and creative industries at Monash, Dr. Anuba Sarkar, about Bollywood and soft power. And then um, uh, from 8 o'clock onwards, we had Caitlin McGrain from Genvic speaking to us about gendered cyber hate, and then Dr. Meredith Bergman about the Ernie's Awards. Yeah. <laughs> um, Some good stuff. Like, I really love the link between the last two interviews. Yeah. So yeah. Good. Yeah, and as always, we will have the podcast up later today and we will link to um, lots of people's websites, articles, Instagram handles, Twitter handles in our show notes. So make sure you check that out and tune in to the other breakfast shows all through the week. We will see you next week. Bye. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.